friends, I want you to imagine for just a moment that you're home alone one evening when the phone rings. And on the other end of that phone is a person that's conducting a survey sponsored by the Smithsonian Institution. And the purpose of this brief survey is to uncover the opinions of average Americans just like you to discover what you would believe to be America's darkest day or what might be called the worst day in American history. Now, if you were to spend a few minutes on the telephone and you were to participate in this survey, what do you think your answer might be? What would you say was the darkest day in the history of America? Perhaps you would mention the Wall Street crash of 1929, which ultimately spurred the Great Depression. Maybe you'd mention the Watergate scandal where President Richard Nixon was involved in that illegal political maneuvering. Maybe you'll mention the assassination of President John F. Kennedy or the near assassination of President Ronald Reagan. Maybe you would mention the Bill Clinton impeachment scandal. Is, does is really mean what is is? How about the 2008 financial collapse where various banks and investment companies went belly up and the housing market imploded and, and people who had 401ks lost 40% of their retirement disappearing overnight? I know I think I might mention the winter at Valley Forge. That was during the Revolutionary War. We weren't even a country yet during the time of Valley Forge. We were on the brink of losing the War of Independence to the British. George Washington was our general. He was leading this ragtag group of soldiers made up of mostly citizens. Most of them were just farmers. They had very little resources. Uh, soldiers were not being paid. They didn't have enough food, not enough blankets, not enough shoes. Guys were traipsing, traipsing through the snow with bloody feet because there weren't enough shoes to go around. During that time, America had not even won one battle against the British, and the odds were only getting worse that winter at Valley Forge. You know, friends, all of those events, all those ones I just mentioned, those are all very dark days in America's history. So if you were on the phone doing a survey, my goodness, you would have plenty to choose from. Christian friends, we're going to open our Bibles this morning to the book of Galatians. And here in Galatians 2, in Galatians 2, you and I are coming this morning to one of the darkest days in the history of the gospel. Just as, just as America has had its own fair share of peaks and valleys over the course of its history, so the gospel of Jesus Christ has also had its fair share of triumphs and tragedies. And here in Galatians 2, the Apostle Paul is going to narrate for us one of the most discouraging setbacks that ever happened in the history of the Christian church and the gospel message. So friends, I hope you have your Bible, and we're going to go now to Galatians 2 in this message that I've entitled, The Gospel's Darkest Day. Now friends, over the last two Sundays, we've been stepping our way through the second half of Galatians 1, and also into the first half of Galatians chapter 2. We've been listening very closely as the Apostle Paul has been boldly defending the gospel that he preached and the ministry that he worked among the Galatian Christians. As we've been learning in various messages together, there were a group of false teachers that were very proactive 
getting the ears of the Galatian Christians, and they were undercutting the gospel message. As they did that, they were also undercutting the Apostle Paul. These false teachers were telling the Galatian Christians, you can't listen to Paul. You shouldn't trust Paul. He, he is a rogue apostle with a rogue message. Well, over the last two Sunday mornings, we have watched as the Apostle Paul has been holding out proof. He's been holding out evidences that gives affirmation to the gospel he preached and to defend the authenticity of his apostleship. A few weeks ago, we learned Paul proved that his message was not his own. His message didn't come from man. It wasn't taught to him by man. He received his message of the gospel directly from Jesus Christ. And then last week when we were together, we saw how Paul proved that he wasn't a, a renegade. He wasn't a rogue apostle because when he went to Jerusalem, the apostles in Jerusalem welcomed him with open arms. They gave him the right hand of fellowship and they all agreed that there was an unbreakable unity that they had together in the gospel. Well, family, this morning we get to chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. Paul's going to talk now about a third event, a third event that proved his equality, his trustworthiness. And that was the time that the Apostle Paul had to confront the Apostle Peter for something that Peter did publicly that gave a black eye to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Family, we're going to look this morning verses 11 to 16 here in Galatians 2. This is surely one of the darkest days in the history of the gospel. Where did the apostle Peter go wrong? Where did Peter go wrong? And why was Paul so right in confronting him? And what lessons, what practical lessons can you and I as Christians today take from this text well, family, I want you to see, first of all, this morning from God's word, number one, as we talk about Peter's mistakes, here's the first mistake he made, number one, Peter cut off fellowship from Gentile Christians. Number one, Peter cut off fellowship from Gentile Christians. Now, I hope you have your copy of the scriptures here in uh, Galatians 2 now, Galatians 2, and I'm going to read verses 11 and 12. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him... To his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Now, Christian friends, all of us at least one time in our lives have, have been exposed to that famous paradox question. What do you do when the irresistible force meets the immovable object? We've all heard that famous paradox before. Well, friends, here in Galatians 2, we are seeing two of the most famous apostles of the New Testament coming into a clash of conflict. And it really might seem that what we're about to watch unfold is the clash of the immovable force versus the, uh, or the irresistible force against the immovable object. I mean, wow. Think about this for a minute. On the one hand, you've got the apostle Peter. He was the unquestioned leader of all the apostles. He lived with Jesus for three and a half years. He did various miracles for Jesus. 
Peter walked on the water with Jesus. He saw the resurrected Jesus out of the tomb on Resurrection Sunday. Peter was one of the preachers who led thousands of people to Christ on the day of Pentecost. But then on the other side of this equation, you have the Apostle Paul. Undoubtedly the greatest scholar that Christianity has ever had. The greatest thinker, the greatest missionary in the history of the church. The Apostle Paul advanced the gospel farther and wider than anyone in history. And oh, by the way, the Apostle Paul met with the resurrected Jesus too. And he had a calling from the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. And oh yeah, the Apostle Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. So family, here are these two legendary apostles coming into conflict, and Paul's telling us about it. Well, what would cause this conflict to happen? Why did Paul have to go and confront Peter face to face? Well, family, look at your text. Here in verses 11 and 12, Paul starts to tell us the, the gist of the problem here. He says that Peter came up to the city of Antioch from Jerusalem. And at first, Peter was taking all of his meals with the Gentile Christians. And they were having open, unrestricted fellowship together. Now, we have to stop here for just a moment and understand this. That for many generations, for many generations of Jews, the Old Testament scriptures had taught all kinds of laws and prohibitions and dietary restrictions on what Jewish people were and were not supposed to eat. This is one of the important things that separated Jews from Gentiles, was these distinctions about dietary restrictions. But something happened in Peter's life in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 10 and 11, God is advancing the gospel. The gospel is spreading wider and wider. The gospel is going to be going to the nations. Peter is given a vision. He's given a vision of a big sheet that comes down from heaven. And on this sheet or inside this sheet are all these animals that for generations and generations were for Jews on the do not eat list. And God tells Peter in the vision, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, ain't happening, Lord. Ain't happening. I am not eating those animals in the sheet. I can't do that. I've never eaten any of those animals because those are unholy. Those are unclean animals. And that is when the Lord responded to Peter in Acts 10, Peter, what I have cleansed and what I have made right for you, you should not call unclean. This was a way that God was getting through to Peter to show Peter that the gospel message was going to be going much wider than just to the Jews. These old distinctions, these old dividing lines like dietary laws, they were going to be abolished because there was going to be one church, a church of Jesus Christ made up of both Jews and Gentiles. One unified church, one church, one family under the gospel. So family, now we fast forward. Here we are in Antioch. Peter is having all this fellowship with all these Gentile Christians. They're sitting together. They're having meals together. They're worshiping together. 
And it's all because of the gospel. And Peter has given no regard to any of those old dietary laws that used to keep Jews and Gentiles apart. So there's all this great fellowship going on. But then Peter made a monumental mistake. Paul writes that some Jews came up from Jerusalem. They came up to Antioch, where down in Jerusalem, James, the brother of Jesus, was the primary pastor. So they came up from Jerusalem, and Paul said they were of the circumcision party. What that means is, it means that these Jews coming up for a visit were part of this legalistic group, these false brethren, who said that in order to be a Christian, you didn't only have to believe on Jesus for salvation, you also needed to do all of the rules and regulations of Judaism. That is what this group believed. Well, what happened? The moment these Jewish people from Jerusalem showed up, Peter, slowly but surely, starts withdrawing his fellowship from the Gentile Christians. Now, why did Peter do this? Look at verse 11. The reason why Peter did this, Paul said, was because, you see it there? Fear. Fear. In other words, Peter was afraid that if he kept fellowshipping with the Gentiles, he was going to start losing some of his popularity and his influence down in Jerusalem with all the Jews down there, the Christian Jews. So what we're saying here, family, is another way of saying is Peter got intimidated. Peter gave in to the pressure, and he wasn't willing to stand firm on his gospel convictions. And this was a gospel-oriented issue. The unity of the church of Jesus was at stake. So that's why Paul says, I had to withstand him. I went and withstood Peter to his face, Paul says, because he was to be blamed. This was wrong. Peter was saying one thing about his beliefs, but he was living a different way with his actions. And guess what, Christians? We got a name for that. It's called hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. You say you have all these beliefs, but you don't live them out. That's hypocrisy. Well, family, before we dig any further into Peter's hypocrisy and talk about the damage that was going on here, let's take a moment here for ourselves, okay? Let's make a great application here for our own lives in the first instance about this issue as it relates to confronting open sin. Let's be honest, there are many Christians today in America and many churches and even many pastors that would practically, they would rather turn themselves inside out before they would ever want to confront some person in their church. They would rather turn themselves inside out rather than confront someone about some issue of sin so many people today are so afraid of conflict, so afraid of confrontation. But the scriptures are clear. When there is open, obvious, public, heinous, destructive sin that's taking place inside the body, it must be addressed. 
You know, Jesus himself was the one who first started talking about this issue of addressing sin. Look in your notes there. I gave you this scripture from Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your bro- this is Jesus speaking. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidences of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That's Jesus speaking. All right, how about Galatians 6.1? Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You know what, friends? Even pastors, even pastors are not above discipline or correction if they are practicing open, public, heinous sin. Even pastors are not exempt from being disciplined. Look in your notes, 1 Timothy 5. Paul tells Timothy, do not admit a charge against an elder, against a pastor, a shepherd, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those, the those there is those elders, those pastors, who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Listen, family, this is the truth of the New Testament. We shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't be adverse to confrontation or to discipline if and when the situation calls for it. Discipline becomes necessary inside the body of Christ because the name of Jesus is at stake. Because the gospel is at stake. And when this heinous, awful, public, rampant, uh, uh, destructive sin, when it's taking place, it drags Jesus' good name and it drags the gospel itself down into the mud. And scripture says God's people cannot stand by and let that happen. So family... Now we understand why Paul had no choice in confronting Peter for this public hypocrisy. Now let's move on. I want to show you a second thing. As we keep unpacking the narrative here, there's a second way that Peter's actions were completely wrong. Here's number two. Number two, Peter caused hurt and confusion to the body of Christ. Number two, Peter caused hurt and confusion to the body of Christ. Look at verse 13. Paul says, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. That is, with Peter. So that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Now family, it doesn't matter how old you are this morning. It doesn't matter where you went to school. All of us have had this same experience. We've all had this happen We come into the cafeteria, we come into the lunchroom, and we all have seen it, that one student who's sitting all alone because no one wants to socialize with them, no one wants to be seen with them. We've all been there, we've all seen it. And the same response always happens from our teachers. And they want to come and talk to us, and they want to remind us that those kids, that that guy, that girl, they're people too. They're human beings, too. They're made in God's image, too. They're, they're, they're just like the rest of us. They have hearts and souls and feelings, just like everyone else. 
You know, family, how often has it happened for you? And I think it probably happens more as you age, as you continue to mature. And you see that happen. You see the one kid who's sitting all alone. Your heart starts to break. Your heart breaks when you see children separating from one another because of something physical. Well, family, because of that reality, we can surely understand how incensed Paul was when he saw Peter, the great apostle Peter, separating from believers over something that was spiritual. Family, you might remember last Sunday, we, in our study, looked at the previous section. If you'll just take a second and look back to verse 9. In verse 9, Paul said that he had gone up to Jerusalem, you remember? Paul had been up into Jerusalem. He had this private meeting with the apostles, and James was there, the Lord's brother. Peter was there. John was there. And they had this meeting to talk about ministry and talk about the gospel and talk about the church. And in that meeting, the apostles gave Paul the right hand of fellowship. And they put their arm around Paul and said, Yup, we're all together in this. We're one team, and we're all reaching we're reaching different kinds of people, but we're reaching them together with the one gospel. There's just one message, one gospel, and it's going out to all kinds of people. That was the truth that Peter and Paul shook hands on in Jerusalem. Now they're in Antioch, and this delegation of these legalistic Jews come rolling into town. And Peter starts to withdraw. There's a problem with that. Peter starts to waffle. He's not standing on his doctrinal principles anymore. This belief, this, this uh, foundational truth that him and Paul shook hands over, that there's one gospel, one church, one family in Jesus, they shook hands on that. And now Peter is backing away. And he's backing away, not just from any Gentiles. He's backing away from Gentiles who are his brothers and sisters in Christ. We see what happens here. Peter got caught up in the public relations thoughts. Peter got caught up in what other people were going to think about him. Family, in your notes there, I gave you a great quote from John Stott. John Stott was a great New Testament scholar, a pastor, and a writer. Stott made a very wise observation. I gave you this in your notes. Stott said, The same Peter who had denied his Lord for fear of a maidservant now denied him again for fear of the circumcision party. Family, when we look at verses 13 and following, this is like somebody dropping a bowling ball into a pool. That's what's happening here. The, the, the ugly splashes that take place, the ripples that are going, this is the bowling ball in the pool. Peter withdraws. He's not eating anymore with these Gentile believers. And guess what happens next? It gets worse. Now the rest of the Jewish Christians, they're withdrawing too. They said, oh, well, Peter's doing this, so it must be the mature thing to do. We better separate from those Gentiles, too. And so here's Peter, 
and now the rest of the Jewish Christians separating from their own brothers and sisters in the Lord. Do you see what an awful mess this is? What a mess. I want you to imagine just for a second that you are one of those Gentile Christians that's being separated from. Just think about this for a second. You're a Gentile Christian, and you used to have some wonderful get-togethers with all the believers around your city. The food was great. The fellowship was great. Everyone was smiling and talking and glad to be together and talk about the things of Jesus. And, and even at the end of the meal, you would often do a transition, and at the end of that meal, you would celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And you would remember the sacrificial death of Jesus. And there in the room, there were Jews who were Christians. And there were Gentiles that were Christians. But you were all one together. These were tremendous times in your church. Even Peter was there. And Peter came. The legendary Peter. And told you some stories. How he walked on the water. And how Jesus did miracles of feeding the 5,000 with loaves and fish. And all these great things, and Peter would teach you, and he would instruct you, and he'd encourage you. And then all of a sudden, where's Peter? How come he doesn't come around anymore? How come he doesn't come and eat with us? How come he doesn't come be a part of our church family? Not only did Peter withdraw, Paul says it even affected Barnabas. Barnabas was one of the founding fathers of this church. We studied Barnabas for about five weeks a few months ago. Barnabas was one of the guys that came up here to Antioch with the gospel and helped lead a bunch of these Gentiles to faith in Christ. And now here's Barnabas. Barnabas sees Peter doing this, and so he, he, he starts to go along with it too. He's one of the founding fathers of this church, and he's withdrawing. And doesn't want to fellowship together with these Gentile believers. Now let me ask you, how would that make you feel? How would that make you feel? They were separating from you over dietary laws. Dietary laws? Which up until five minutes ago, they weren't even living by. Now all of a sudden, the dietary laws are a big issue again. You know exactly how this would make you feel. You would feel like an outsider. You would feel like that kid sitting alone in the cafeteria. You would feel like a loser. You would feel like a second-class Christian because all these other Christians were separating from you over dietary laws. And guess what happens? Guess what you've got now? Now you've got two congregations instead of one. Now you've got two churches. You've got a Gentile church and you've got a Jewish church. And the Gentile church is being shunned because they're unholy. They're dirty. Family, one Bible scholar I read this week described this situation as nothing less than a public scandal. This is a scandal. And I think that scholar is absolutely right. So this was something public, and that's why Paul confronts Peter in public. 
Now, Christians, as we think about this situation that's happening here, let's take away two more very powerful applications for our lives. Here's the first one. As you think about your life and mine in the present, we've got a devastating mistake by Peter here, and it's a reminder to us Christians that we need to be diligent to align our outer actions with our inward beliefs. We must be careful to do that. We must live on the outside what we profess to believe on the inside. If you say you believe something, then you ought to live that way. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Let's say, Christian friend, that let's say you have a Christian conviction about not watching certain R-rated movies because you know there's nudity there, you know there's questionable things there, you know there's sexual content there, and so you have this conviction that you don't go see rated R movies. But then all of a sudden, a group of your co-workers says, hey, Thursday night, we're going to a movie. Why don't you come with us? Well, if you truly have a conviction that you shouldn't be watching that content as a Christian, then you shouldn't go to that get-together on Thursday night simply because you want to fit in with the group. If it's your conviction, then live by that conviction. If you have a Christian conviction that all fellow believers are one family in Jesus, regardless of their race, color, nationality, or ethnicity, then it shouldn't matter to you in the slightest. If you were to see another Christian out in public, it shouldn't bother you to give that other Christian a handshake or a hug or a kiss on the cheek. Regardless of who you're with or regardless of who they're with. If that is your belief on the inside, then live it out on the outside. You see, Peter, family, Peter was so guilty of hypocrisy, but sometimes you and I were just as guilty. We talk such a great game on Sundays. We do a great job when we're surrounded by all these other Christians. But how do you do the other days of the week? How are you at living out your Christian convictions when you're not at church, when you're not surrounded by other believers? Family, the Bible calls us to sincerity. Sincerity, a truthfulness that has an alignment between beliefs and behavior. That's the first great application that we take out of this second part. But here's a second one, and it's closely related. A second application is this, friend. Your actions have consequences. Your actions have consequences, especially when you're a leader. Peter made this epic failure as a leader and his actions had a negative effect on so many people. Christians were affected. Barnabas was affected. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce was right. He said this, what Peter did moved others. It is obvious that any Christian must give heed to his actions, and the greater the position of responsibility, the more important those actions become. Christians let that sink in. Everything you do, Christian, in this life has an effect. Has an effect. Your choices affect your spouse, your kids, 
your family members, your church family. It affects your co-workers. It affects the community around you. And listen, the higher up the ladder of responsibility you go, the bigger the splash is when you fall in a big mistake. So we need to be careful, believers, and remember that our choices and our actions always have consequences. That's why Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, be diligent, he said, be diligent to watch your doctrine and your life closely. That's 1 Timothy 4.16. Well, family, it couldn't have been, it couldn't have been easy for Paul to confront Peter publicly, but it had to be done. And we'll quickly review here. Why did it have to be done? Number one, Peter hypocritically cut off fellowship from Gentile believers. And number two, he caused hurt and confusion to the body of Christ. But here's the third mistake in verses 14 to 16. Number three, if you're taking notes, Peter cast a dark shadow on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Number three, Peter cast a dark shadow on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Look at verse 14. Paul says, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature or by birth and are not sinners like the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. You know, Christians, all of us from time to time, we've heard somebody make an epic comeback. We've heard a great comeback. We've heard a great zinger that was perfectly timed. This week I read a very funny story of this 10-year-old girl who was called into the living room to talk with her parents after the mom and dad discovered that this little girl had been lying about her grades. And so in this discussion between mom and dad and this little 10-year-old girl was very spunky, dad and mom are trying to drive home this point that she needs to work hard, that hard work and education are the key to a bright future. And the dad is just pouring out his heart. He tries to, he's trying to reach his little girl. He says, honey, don't you want to grow up and be successful like me? To which the sassy little girl replied, well, mom doesn't do anything and she's got it pretty good. <laughs> Family, we've all been there for one of those jaw-dropping kind of wow comebacks. And here in our text, friends, verse 14 Paul ushers this question before Peter, and it is a zinger, and it hits the mark, and it opens the jaw, and it says, wow, that hit the mark. I like how the New International Version gives us that question from Paul. The NIV words it and translates it like this, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Boom. Mic drop. That is a stinger of a question. This was a devastating question by Paul. He got right to the heart of the matter. 
Here's Peter. He's withdrawing because of fear and external pressure. But that decision by Peter was compromising the gospel. It was compromising this truth that all believers are one family in Jesus Christ. Look in your notes. Paul says later in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, family scripture says that the spiritual bond that we share under Jesus' blood is far greater than any skin color or ethnicity or physical lineage. It is the power of the gospel that makes us one. We're one in Christ, one in the gospel. And that's what Peter's decision compromised. So family, let this be a great lesson for all of us today, that there are no racial lines, no ethnic divisions, no color divisions under the gospel of Jesus Christ. All believers in Jesus Christ are one family under His blood. When we look around this church family, even this morning, and we see all different kinds of nationalities, guess what? That's good. That's a good thing. That is something we should be thankful for, and that is something we should celebrate, because guess what? That's how heaven's going to look when you get there. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, the audience of heaven is singing this song to Jesus in Revelation 5. Worthy are you, because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Dear friend, it shouldn't matter one iota to you if Grace Baptist Church is a church that has white people in it, or black people in it, or Asian people in it, or Latino people in it. It doesn't matter what kind of people are in this church because we're just supposed to be the church. Whatever the makeup of this community is, that should be reflected in our local churches. Grace Baptist Church should represent what the community looks like because Jesus is still reaching all kinds of people. Amen? Now, verse 15 is probably where Paul stops rehearsing the narrative about this confrontation with Peter. And it seems here, most Bible scholars think in verse 15 now, Paul's addressing back the, the Galatians, the recipients of this letter. Verse 15, Paul uses the rebuke about Peter to once again review and bring up and restate the grandest truth in all the Bible. And it's definitely the grandest truth of this whole book. And that is this doctrine the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith in Christ, totally apart from religious works. Three times, if you look for it, three times in verse 16, Paul says that human beings are not made right with God by human efforts of law-keeping. We are not justified. We're not made right with God. Our sins are not forgiven because we do these religious regulations. Instead, Scripture says, salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And Paul gives us that doctrine three times in verse 16. Look for it there. See it three times. See if you can spot it. 
I like the way Dr. John MacArthur gives these three categories or three ways that Paul emphasizes justification by faith. You see it there? See if you can spot it. The three ways that justification by faith shows up in verse 16. The first time is a general statement. Paul says, a man, that's general, a man is not justified by works of the law. That's the first one. It's general. The second time is the middle of 16. This time it's personal. Paul says, even we, we, it's personal, we have believed in Jesus that we might be justified by faith and not by works of the law. And then the third time you see their family, it's in the same verse, for a third time in verse 16, only now in the final time it's universal. Paul says, for by the works of the law, no flesh, that's universal, no flesh shall be justified. You see, family, here's what was so unfortunate about Peter's choice. Peter's choice to separate from the Gentiles, it compromised the most important doctrine of the Bible. He compromised the doctrine that makes the church the church. That we are justified by faith. That's what makes the church. And so Paul was right to make this an issue, and we should stand with him. With Paul, we say it generally, and we say it personally, and we say it universally. No person, no man, no one is ever made right by religious duties, not by religious works or religious regulations. It's not through law-keeping. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ. Whoever has faith in Christ, whoever's trusting in Christ, then we are one family with them in the gospel. It doesn't matter what their nationality is, or their background, or their skin color. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you aren't a Christian. You can't believe what you're hearing because the world doesn't talk like this. And you're intrigued by this. And you want to know more. Well, friend, you need to know this morning, we don't care what race you are. We, we don't care what nationality you are. We don't care what your background is. We don't care what your country of origin is. Our greatest concern, dear friend, at Grace Baptist Church is not the color of your skin, but the condition of your soul. What we care about most is do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Scripture says we're sinners. We deserve God's judgment for the ways we've disobeyed His laws. We violated God's character. All of us, we deserve judgment. But the great truth of the gospel is Jesus came into the world for sinners just like us. And he died so that all those who trust in him could have salvation. Listen, nobody is ever born a Christian. You weren't born a Christian, and you weren't born into a Christian family either. You know what? You were born a sinner. That's what the Bible says. You were born one thing, a sinner. And you're going to die a sinner too unless you trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Friends, that's what it means to be a Christian. It's not about what your parents did. but It's not about where they took you to church when you were little. It's about you believing on Jesus Christ by faith. Friend, if you don't have that personal relationship with Jesus, come and know Him today. Turn from your sins. Have a humble heart. Confess your sins and believe on Jesus Christ. Receive Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Well, family, as we close this morning, I hope that this deeper look into Paul's face-to-face -face confrontation with Peter 
I hope it has given you some important insights and some important applications to consider, most especially as it relates to our oneness in the gospel. You know, today's secular world is rife with racism. People are continually being broken apart and segregated into various classes and categories. And it happens all the time simply because of the color of people's skin. But friends, listen to me. Listen. There's only one color that matters. And it's red. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. That's the only color that matters to me. And Christian friend, I hope that's the only color that matters to you is red. The blood of Jesus that atones for those who trust in Him. We are one family of believers because of Jesus. So Christian friends, let's stand firm in that unity that Jesus died to give us. Looking back over the history of America, there's been a lot of dark days. Freedom, liberty, were hanging in the balance and it's true in Christian history, too. There have been those times when the gospel message was hanging in the balance and dark shadows were being cast over the glorious truth of the gospel message. So believers, as we go for a brand new week, may God strengthen each one of us to protect and to preserve this doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's the central doctrine that unites us as one family and one body, one church, anytime we see a dark cloud that's rising, that threatens that unity or that gospel, then just like the Apostle Paul, we've got to stand up, we've got to be firm, and we have to speak out so that the true gospel will always shine brightly and always reign supreme in our lives and in our church. Thanks for listening. This Preaching for a Change broadcast has been brought to you by the Grace Baptist Church of Hazleton, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at mygracebaptist.church. If you enjoyed this broadcast, then share it with a friend on your favorite social media network. And be sure to join us next time for more enlightening and encouraging biblical exposition here on Preaching for a Change.